Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Tipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Kia ora tātou katoa, um, ko Steve Waters tōku ingoa. I'd like to thank you all for joining us this, this afternoon. Um, these sessions have proven to be really fantastic this year, and I'm sure this afternoon we're in for another absolute treat as we continue with our series of public history talks, um, our collaboration between the Alexander Turnbull Library and Manatu Tonga. I'm sure today's presenter, sound historian Sarah Johnston, is a very familiar voice to many of you, a former radio journalist, broadcaster and sound archivist, Sarah is passionate about sharing the sounds of our past. In 2021, she was the recipient of a grant from Firiate Mahara, New Zealand History Grants, and the Judith Binney Trust to research and write about the New Zealand um, about New Zealand radio during World War II. More of which you can read about in her current uh, about her current work on the blog World War Voices. In the 1940s, radio played a central role in the life of the New Zealand household as a source of news and entertainment. Sarah is researching radio during this era and is exploring the role of our first radio war correspondents during this period, who travelled with the New Zealand forces in North Africa, the Middle East, Italy and the Pacific as mobile broadcasting units. Today, she will talk about her research, including the way demand from listeners back home shaped the work of the broadcasting units. Her talk will include archived radio recordings from the era, courtesy of Radio New Zealand and Ngā Sound and Vision. So at this stage, I'd like to hand over to Sarah. Kia ora koutou katoa, ka nui mihi, kia koutou. Thank you for, for joining us today. Um, Ko Sarah Johnston toko ingoa, he uri o Ngāti Rākai Pāka, Ngāti Kāhununu mō Ngāti Pākehā Ahau, um, coming to you from Ōtotahi Christchurch, which is, is my hometown. Um, and thank you for coming along wherever you are. What I might just launch into really is just a quick bit of background about the mobile broadcasting units. I have talked a little bit over the past year, 18 months um, on RNZ and, other, and a few other platforms um, about this project. But in case you, you're, it's brand new to you, um, the New Zealand broadcasting units during World War II were operated by the National Broadcasting Service. So that was a forerunner of RNZ. Um, and radio in New Zealand began in the 1920s. It was largely nationalised by the first Labour government in the 1930s. And by 1940, 85% of households had a radio. So um, I just want to quickly thank, as Steve mentioned, these organisations for their support of this project. Um, the funding I received last year really helped get it off the ground. And Tonga and RNZ have been ongoing in their support. And thank you, of course, to our, to our hosts today. Um, so radio listening during World War II. Um, 85% of households had a radio. The National Broadcasting Service, the sort of proto-RNZ, had 16 stations. And then there was also a commercial network, which was set up in 1936, and they had four um, stations, the ZB stations, in the main centres. But the output of the mobile broadcasting units 
at this stage in my research, I feel it was largely confined to the National Broadcasting Service. It doesn't appear to have been used as much on the ZB stations. Um, the, the listenership, radio listenership in New Zealand was really significant. Um, the, the proportion of radio licences to um, our population was higher in New Zealand in 1940 than any other country in the British Empire, and we were third in the world in radio um, ownership behind Denmark and Sweden. So radio was a, a dominant um, medium at this time. Um, a source of entertainment in the household primarily, but the war saw it becoming increasingly important as a source of news, especially from overseas. Um, many people had the large um, shortwave capable radios, which allowed you to tune into the BBC and other shortwave broadcasters and hear the war, the war news direct. And this was this meant that the mobile unit, some of their reports were, were broadcast by the BBC shortwave, and that was a huge leap forward in immediacy for New Zealand radio listeners. You could hear a New Zealand reporter on the other side of the world talking about what the New Zealand division were doing, sometimes within 24 hours, 48 hours of that action taking place. So that was a, a really big leap forward. Um, the broadcasting unit was a small team. The one with one team was only two members. Um, the larger one was three or four staff, depending on the different periods of time. They were all employees of the MBS, and the first unit went to Egypt, North Africa, the Middle East, and then in 1943 it moved across to Italy, and a second unit went to the Pacific that same year. They were embedded in the army. The, the, the men, they were all men, the broadcasters who went, um, they were subject to military discipline and censorship. They wore uniforms. They had the rank of officers, but they remained the employees of the broadcasting service, which continued to pay their salaries. When they went overseas, their position titles were, were either commentators or engineers. Um, the role of a radio journalist or a reporter really didn't exist. It was the very early days of, um, of radio journalism at this point. Um, there was some crossover, though, by the staff out of necessity. Um, there are some examples of, of radio engineers doing some on-air work. And the role of commentator, they actually changed and started calling themselves war correspondents within the first year of, of arriving in Egypt. And I think that's indicative of how their perception of their work changed. So the first unit sailed from New Zealand uh, in, in August 1940 with the third echelon of New Zealand forces. And the intention in sending it was very broad. It was to ma maintain the morale of the troops and the nation by keeping New Zealanders in touch with their men overseas. Those were the words of the director of um, the National Broadcasting Service, James Shelley, in his proposal to the government to send this unit overseas. They were tasked with making disc recordings of New Zealanders and the activities they were taking part in as, as their part of the war effort, and those were going to be sent back here for broadcast on radio. So discs were the sound recording medium of the time. Um, after the war in the late 1940s, early 1950s, they were replaced increasingly by a magnetic tape. The broadcasting units were taking this disc recording technology into a new field. Radio broadcasting had, had never been to war before, and there seems to have been some degree of uncertainty on all sides as exactly 
how this was going to work. The unit um, arrived in Mahdi camp on the outskirts of Cairo in Egypt in October 1940, and the men discovered that the military authorities had not been notified, in fact, that they were coming. In fact, the unit's officer in charge, who was uh, engineer Noel Palmer, he recalled the greeting they received from, from the military um, authorities at Mardi was, good God, whatever are they going to send us next? So the New Zealand unit had sailed for Egypt equipped with a specially built 16-foot long recording caravan body. This was built out of Kauri by the Petoni Railway Workshops and it was kitted out by NBS engineers. Um, eventually, it would be mounted on the back of a truck chassis, but the chassis they had ordered from Britain didn't arrive at Mardi until some eight months later in July 1941. And eventually when it did and they mounted the caravan on the back, they found it was a bit too cumbersome and slow for travelling the long distances and often long distances at speed, which were required to keep up with the New Zealand division once it started um, moving through North Africa and, and the Middle East. So increasingly, the unit ended up using a car, which they purchased in Egypt, and sometimes they used smaller, faster trucks, which they borrowed from the army. They also had army drivers, and they used these to carry portable disc recorders. Um, the caravan and the truck, which they named Esmeralda, which I rather like, um, that they remained at Mardi largely and was used as a studio for editing, although they did actually make some trips to, um, to Palestine and Syria using the truck. Once they um, arrived in Egypt, they, even though that was only October, they, they had to start thinking about content for a special Christmas Day broadcast. This is because the discs they recorded could take several weeks to make their way back to New Zealand by air and by sea. And because they were quite limited in terms of travel, um, they didn't yet have this truck chassis and they didn't yet have their car, um, they recorded some messages home from New Zealanders to help fill the program. Uh, General Bernard Freiburg, the commander of the 2NZDF, came to listen to the Christmas program before the discs were sent home. Uh, the unit noted how much he disliked publicity generally. But he appeared to be quite pleased with their work and he agreed to record a Christmas greeting himself for radio listeners. So to give you a feel of the early work, this is the opening of the Christmas 1940 program and it's introduced by the unit's first uh, commentator announcer, Doug Lawrenson. <laughs> Christmas Day 1940, and over here on the other side of the world, many thousands of miles away from you at home, there are New Zealanders serving throughout the whole of the Middle East Command. Away out on the Western Desert, men from your town, possibly from your own household, are serving in the outposts of our territory and on the lines of communication leading up to the front. Scattered along the Nile Valley, you will find other New Zealanders, many of whom have come down from the line for a well-earned rest. Over in Palestine, where the first Christmas Day was celebrated nearly 2,000 years ago, you'll see the familiar peaked hat of our men. On the Mediterranean sail the ships of the Royal Navy, and there is hardly a ship out there which does not carry at least one naval rating who hails from New Zealand. And up above, machines of the Royal Air Force fly overhead, and at the controls, 
at the navigating or wireless instruments or in the air gunner's cockpit, you'll find many a young man who now knows the Middle East as once he knew Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin and scores of other New Zealand towns. And so today, New Zealanders from the three fighting services, Army, Navy and Air Force, combine to send to you at home the best of Christmas wishes from us all. And now from Alexandria, on the shores of the Mediterranean, we hear a greeting from a New Zealander serving with the Royal so Navy. That's how the, uh, one of their first major broadcasts sounded. Um, I just remembered, I meant to say in my introduction, that of course this, um, this presentation does contain voices of people who have passed away. So I, um, I would like to pay tribute to, to all the people that were here today and also to all the, um, the radio broadcasters and archivists who've archivists who've cared for these recordings over the past 80 years and made it possible for us to, to hear these tanga today. So that was Doug Lawrence in, in uh, Christmas 1940. And the reception to that program was um, very favourable. The Listener magazine the next month in January 1941 Noted for most listeners, the Christmas morning broadcast of personal messages from New Zealand soldiers in Egypt was the highlight of the work of the Overseas Broadcasting Unit. By far the most popular job they do is the personal messages feature, popular with mothers, wives and sweethearts who are able to hear in the familiar surroundings of their own homes the voices of boys who've been away from home for months. So they had begun this new programme um, to give airtime to the mobile unit's output. It was two weeknight sessions, but they quickly discovered this was not going to meet listener demand. By February 1941, this had expanded and they'd created this new, dedicated, hour-long program on Sunday mornings called With the Boys Overseas. And this would feature recordings from the mobile unit in Egypt, as well as material that the BBC supplied recorded from, from New Zealanders who were based in England. So the messages home were generally only about 30 seconds long. Uh, the men who were going to speak were chosen by ballot, um, by their units. It was nothing to do with the broadcasters who actually got to speak. And they had to write out the message and submit it for checking by, um, by censors or by their officers before it was recorded. They couldn't mention any place names or any action they were involved in that might be of advantage to the, to the enemy if they were listening in. Generally, I think their message was probably expected to be fairly, um, fairly upbeat, fairly um, reassuring for listeners at home. So this means they all tend to sound fairly generic. Um, the, with the boys overseas was, was supplies on these discs and then it was edited once it got back in Wellington. There are no surviving recordings of the full compiled program as it was um, broadcast in New Zealand, but we can get a good idea of how it sounded by listening to its components. So first of all, there's the theme music. Um, it took, they used a newly popular song of the war, We Are the Boys from Way Down Under, also sometimes called Sons of the Anzacs. Um, here's a little burst of it performed by the Trentham Army Band.
And then initially in the first few programs, the men who recorded a greeting were able to request a song. And then that piece of music would be edited into the program back in Wellington. So here, here are two typical greetings from that era. These are from November 1940. The men you'll hear introduce their song requests, but we don't actually hear the music. This time, Alan Sutherland of Christchurch has a call and a special request. Well, this is a message from Egypt to Mum and Dad at 25 Peel Street, St Andrew's Square, Christchurch. You have been writing a lot about green peas and new potatoes and prime Canterbury, and it wouldn't be a bad idea if you're able to send the lads over here a few samples, as we have almost forgotten what lamb and mint sauce tastes like. After being up in the desert for the last few months, it was just okay to get a decent bath while on holiday in Palestine. However, cheerio to Jack and Nelson at Greymouth, and I hope the dad has given you plenty of hints for the garden. Cheerio also to Bruce at the Ranbury Post Office. I hope you are behaving yourself. Best regards to 13 Seaview Terrace, Timaru, and I still have the pipes in good working order. So here is my favourite tune, Highland Laddie. And here we have Jimmy Spencer from Rotorua. And I'm calling 69 Clarence Street, Ponsonby. How am I doing, Nell? Pretty good as a radio announcer, eh? We're fully recovered now and quite fit, so don't worry about me. My love to yourself and the folks at home. And just a word or two to the folks in Rotorua. No fishing over in these parts, friends. Not so good. But we can take it. So long just now, I'll be seeing you. Oh, and by the way, I hope you like the song I picked out for you. It's Eptide, so I hope you enjoy it. So the content of those messages, uh, it doesn't really say very much. It's a greeting, it's a few little generic kind of comments. And those two, those two speakers were particularly um, relaxed in, and chatty. You know, the messages um, from some men are very stilted. Um, they're quite tongue-tied, they've got microphone fright, and some, some of them literally reading their messages were burned. But the MBS learned it was not really the content of the messages that mattered so much. Uh, it could take several weeks for a disc to arrive in Wellington, as I said, and one of the first tasks that they had to do in Wellington was to check uh, the list of the names of the men who'd been recorded against the lists of men who had been killed or missing in action, were missing in action. Um, at Army Headquarters. Broadcaster Peter Harcourt was in charge of checking those lists of men and of compiling the programme to go to air. He was based in Wellington. He later wrote about his work during the war, saying he came to realise it was not what was said, but the sound of the voice itself that really mattered. He also had the task of contacting the families of the deceased men to tell them that a recording of their loved one existed. Um, it would, in most cases, it would not be played on air, but the family were invited to come and listen to it in private at their local radio station. And dealing with so many grief-stricken families took quite an emotional toll on him. His, his story was powerfully told by his daughter, the actor and filmmaker Miranda Harcourt, um, in her 1996 short film, Voice Over. And you can watch that uh, on NZ On Screen. Um, I'll share the link with that later on. Um, I think it's it's hard for us today. You know, we're so hyper-connected um, via the internet and, and telephones to appreciate the impact of hearing these voices and what it must have meant um, for families back home when your only other means of contact was a letter or very occasionally and at great expense, a telegram. 
and you know when this might be the only time or the last time that you would ever hear that beloved voice. It, it makes these recordings incredibly poignant. So Doug Lawrenson, the first uh, commentator with the unit, he recalled the poignancy of these messages and occasionally the, light, uh, the odd light moment. Um, this is from a radio interview he recorded on his retirement in 1964. In Egypt, I traveled the length and the breadth of the country and the desert, not only collecting dispatches and odd programs, but recording those messages home broadcasts, which were played back in New Zealand on Sunday mornings. Remember them? I shall never forget those long, long lines of troops stretching across the blazing sands, all intent on what they were going to say in the precious minutes of broadcasting time. Hello, Mum. How are you? Hey there, love. I'm feeling as fit as a fiddle. How are you, son? Being a good boy and looking after Mummy? That's the chap. Keep it up. And by way of comic relief, because basically there was an infinite sadness in these pitifully brief messages, I'll never forget the bloke who called, of all things, Old Blossom, the pride of his dairy herd. How are you, old girl? He called cheerfully. Keep at it, Blossom, and don't let up. Mum's written and told me that you're still milking on all four cylinders. Bless your honest Jersey heart. So I would love to say that um, I'm now going to play that recording um, of the message to the cow, but we don't have that. Um, that, that as I increasingly research these recordings, it's, it's clear that at least a third, possibly as much as a half, I, I don't know at this stage, um, of all the discs they recorded do, did not survive. Um, there's various reasons for that, which I could go on into. Um, a lot of it's still speculation by me. I need to confirm it. But uh, we do know that due to the shortage of aluminium, which was the core centre of these discs that they were using, there was a wartime shortage of aluminium. Um, a lot of discs had to be reused, were sent back to the manufacturer to be recoated and reused. So um, I'm assuming that many discs after broadcast were, were reused that way and the messages were lost. Um, the music request part of the program was quickly dropped um, in favour of being able to fit in more messages from more men as the program became appointment listening. It was repeated on Tuesday nights, but by May 1941, the listener published um, an article which has a slightly desperate tone to it, I think, reading between the lines. Um, this is a quote. No single feature ever presented by radio in New Zealand has been the cause of so many letters to the NBS as the Sunday morning program with the boys overseas. Mothers, sisters, sweethearts, cousins, wives and friends have been writing to the service for repetitions of messages, inquiring for further details or offering appreciation of the program. So many letters, in fact, that if the volume continues, extra members of staff may be required to cater for them. So it became a bit of a runaway train for the broadcasting service. People wanted to know why their loved one hadn't been recorded and if he had and they had missed it, how they could hear it again. It was just a bit of a logistics nightmare. Noel Palmer, the um, initial head of the unit, later recalled that it was a case of a spin-off, which was initially imagined as something of a sideline, but once it started, it became a roaring success. Um, in an attempt to make sure that people would hear the messages, uh, every week they would read out the list of the names of the men who would be heard in that week's programme. That would be read out ahead of time to give listeners time to notify their friends and family that they should tune in. 
The public demand meant that the unit's broadcasters had to split their work. One person focused on recording messages to keep up this continual flow of discs back to New Zealand, while another tried to cover the activities of the New Zealand division. Announcer Doug Lawrenson, who we've heard, left the unit in July 1941 to work with British Forces Radio in Cairo, and he was replaced by Arch Curry. He was a seasoned Christchurch NBS announcer, and he would make a name for himself with his coverage of the war. And I think more than anyone, he's entitled to be called our first broadcast war correspondent. He arrived in Egypt in October 1941 and soon found himself out in the Western Desert covering the Crusader offensive. Arch produced some really first-class um, reports on fighting around Tobruk and later Alamein, and many of these were carried by the BBC and were heard back in New Zealand that way. But the unit also had to keep feeding this demand for greetings, and it was impossible to arrange to record men unless they were away from the front lines. So as the fighting moved further and further away from Cairo, heading west into Libya, this meant continual long trips back and forward over the desert between Mardi and the forward areas. The correspondence I've read um, from the unit shows that they were operating almost as a tag team. One group's out in the desert, one's back processing messages in camp, and then they swap over. The unit's um, Ford Mercury sedan car racked up over 80,000 miles and went war through three engines during its two and a half years in North Africa with all this desert travel. And then they took it to Italy and it managed to go through another two engines in Italy. The National Broadcasting Service Director, James Shelley, wrote to the mobile unit broadcasters about the messages. He said, we quite realise the pressure that must have been brought to bear upon you to have this service instituted. And we would say, quite frankly, that of all the matter you are sending us, there's nothing of greater goodwill value than these messages. They, more than anything else, bring home to our listeners here the value of having a broadcasting unit with the troops. At the same time, as the service becomes more widely known, we expect there will be more pressure to extend the service to include a greater number of soldiers. And certainly the pressure for listeners for more messages continued. Um, at one point in January 1942, rumours did the rounds that the New Zealand men had to pay the broadcasters to be able to record a message. Flurry of correspondence backwards and forwards between the NBS and the, the unit, confirming, of course, that this absolutely wasn't the case. Um, and then we had Māori communities. They were, of course, naturally keen to hear recordings of their men. Uh, there's letters to newspapers in strongly Māori districts, such as the East Coast, asking for more recordings of the Māori battalion. Um, there, you find small articles in newspapers in Northland or Portiki, Gisborne, noting when local Māori men had been heard on air, which I think speaks to the strongly communal nature of rural life at this time. They wanted everyone to know that a local man had been heard, that he was okay. The Honourable Parare Paikia, who was the minister responsible for coordinating the Māori war effort, wrote to the Minister of Broadcasting in February 1942, saying he was being inundated with letters from Māori who wanted to hear their men more often. The MBS responded by asking the mobile units to record the Māori battalion whenever possible. And so they made special broadcasts of the Māori Battalion in concert and managed to include a few messages in those. And I think this was their way of trying to meet this demand, but outside of the standard rotation, because, of course, they had to get to all the other battalions and units as well. So um, I'll just play here a recording of a wartime waiata. It's Oe Mama Oe Papa, 
made by the mobile unit at a YMCA concert in Egypt on Christmas Day in 1940. The main body of um, the Māori Battalion was still in England at this time, so these performers were most likely an advance party or perhaps they are Māori men who were serving in other units and were already in Egypt. listener demand for more content from their men in the Middle East. But as I said, the trick was the unit could only record men when they were nearby and they had to make sure they covered everybody in rotation. So it was an ongoing juggling act. Uh, messages home in Te Reo Māori were subject to the same censorship as those in English and the censoring was carried out by a um, Māori officer who spoke Te Reo and who also understood the restrictions of wartime broadcasting. In many cases, this would have been Charles Bennett of Te Aroa, who had also been a broadcaster with the MBS before the war. Captain Bennett, who eventually became commander of the Māori Battalion and was then knighted after the war, was recorded several times by the mobile unit, um, reporting on the battalion's actions, and he was also used by the BBC in broadcasts um, from England when the Māori Battalion was there. Um, in late 1944, by now Lieutenant Colonel Charles Bennett was interviewed for the listener while he was recuperating from um, some wounds received in North Africa. And he commented on the work of the broadcasting unit and the significance of being able to send these messages home for his men. He said, um, and this is, this is a quote, it means a good deal for Māori soldiers to be able to speak to their people, more, I think, than it does to Pākehā troops. Bennett went on to observe that Māori soldiers themselves chose the men who would make the recordings and would speak on behalf of their unit, and that this was often done along tribal lines. He explained that the messages home were highly valued by his people because they were a continuation of Māori oral traditions. He said, as far back as traditions go, we've been moved by the human voice. We don't write our thoughts, we utter them. Broadcasting makes our past live again. I don't feel that the significance that the Māori broadcasts carried for their audience and, and for the speakers themselves was, was really understood or appreciated by the broadcasting unit at the time, sadly. Um, 
the requirements of, of Pākehā culture were absolutely dominant in, in broadcasting during this era. So here's a part of one of Charles Bennett's own messages home from January 1942, and rather than a personal greeting to his whānau, he addresses to Apirana Nata and Nati Paro and offers them condolences on the loss of C Company officers who had died fighting in Libya uh, late in 1941. E api, tēnā koe i a Ngāti Porau. Ko atu te aroha me te tangi ki a Ngāti Porau Luipon. Ka hore taia te kōrero te toa me te manawanui o ākoutou tamariki mokopuna. Kōrera wai wehi, kōrera wai hoki whakamuri. Ngā mea i hinga, i hinga whakamua. Te hinga rangatira, te hinga ao tātau tūpuna. Te aroha, ngā tangi, kei ngā pouaru, kei ngā pani. Haere pare, haere kōrua ko John Green me tā kōrua whānau. Kā hore he aroha i nui atu i tēnā, ki a tuku koutou i a koutou ki a mata, mō te iwi, mō te ao. So recordings like that one of the Māori Battalion were actually my um, introduction to the World War II mobile unit collection. This is back in uh, 2012. I'd just started working for the RNZ Sound Archives and we were helping the Ministry for Culture and Heritage and Dr Monty Suter um, identify content for the Māori Battalion website. Almost all of the broadcasting unit's recordings of the battalion are uh, available to listen to on the website. Uh, if you go to the media library, you can hear that one by Charles Bennett in full and, and many others. It's a fantastic resource. Um, positive response from the public, perhaps the overwhelmingly positive response from the public to the material the Middle East unit was producing, meant in March 1943, the Minister of Broadcasting announced a second unit would be sent into the Pacific with the New Zealand third division. So this was the smaller team. Um, they'd learnt from the Middle East experience it was much better to travel light. So just two men went. Uh, Vivian Spencer was the commentator slash correspondent and Don Cameron was the engineer and they took portable presto disc recorders with them. Recording very much um, similar material as the Middle East um, unit. They were based in New Caledonia. They traveled widely through the Western Pacific, lugging this heavy equipment through the Solomon Islands up to places like Bougainville, Booker, Nissan Island, which was part of New Guinea, in wherever New Zealanders were fighting. Um, they even recorded New Zealand troops in Fiji and then actually recorded some of the Fiji battalion in the Solomon Islands and sent that back for broadcasting in Suva. Um, with the two mobile units now sending discs back, the MBS added further airtime to this output. There was another edition of With the Boys Overseas dedicated to Pacific messengers. Um, and by for about a year at, at its height, the mobile units were filling somewhere between six and eight hours a week of airtime, although some of it was those repeat broadcasts on Tuesday nights. And the MBS, of course, by now had realised that hearing the voices of the men themselves was what was of prime importance to their audience. Um, and they made a conscious effort to get the Pacific unit as far forward to the men who were doing the fighting um, as far as it was safe to do so. 
uh, Don Cameron and Viv Spencer travelled in barges around the remote Treasury Islands um, in the Solomon Islands in October and November 1943, and that was while the territory was still being secured from Japanese forces. Um, here's just a quick example of two messages from the Pacific, um, just to show that pretty much the messages are, are of a very similar sort of flavour. Next message from Reg Clarkson goes to Auckland. Uh, calling all the Clarksons, Mum, Paul, Joyce, Peter, Gloria, Claude, Albie and Lois. I hope you're all well and looking after those fellows of mine. Calling all my friends of the Auckland Motorcycle Club, I'm looking forward to a reunion before long and some more good riding together. I'm doing pretty well, have gained some weight and also a good tan, but have yet to discover the romance of the islands we are told about. Cheerio all. Ken Max calling Marangi Bay, Auckland. Hello to Mum and Dad at Marangi Bay. Hope you are both well. This is Ken calling from the Swaying Farms. If you are listening, Catherine, keep your chin up, honey, and I still think you are the swellest little lady. My regards to your dad and Epsom. Hello, Marion, Jim and Barry, and the two Bettys I know, with Keith and Ethel and Peter John. All the best. Cheerio. So while the Pacific unit was in action, the Māori broadcasters were on the move. Their two original engineers were furloughed back to New Zealand in late 43, and commentator Arch Curry and three new staff made their way through Italy as the New Zealand division moved up through Italy in that campaign. I haven't spoken um, a lot, and as I said, there isn't going to be time to talk about the other material the unit produced beside the messages. Um, but yes, the, it can be divided really into kind of three categories, I feel. There's um, Arch Curry, largely it was Arch Curry, um, who was producing these news reports or action dispatches, as they were called in the day, um, which were broadcast via the BBC. There were the interviews with service personnel about their role in the war, and this was everybody from officers, generals, through to guys who were working in the army postal service or working in the kitchens. And it included a few nurses. We do get to hear a few women, not many, but it was very much with the boys overseas. Um, and then there was also coverage of non-conflict events, such as the concerts, the sport matches, uh, medal parades and other social occasions. And they're all fields for, for further research, and I'll be exploring them as, as the project is ongoing. So to, to finish up, um, I just wanted to talk about how listening to With the Boys Overseas became such a well-known feature of wartime radio. And I think it can be illustrated by the program making its way into advertising. Uh, this, uh, I'm talking about here an advertisement from The Listener from 1944. The advertisement is for victory loans, which were a government war bond. And the drawing depicts two older parents, mum's with her knitting, dad's got his pipe, They've got one of these fabulous um, mantelpiece radio sets between them, and they're listening to their boy sending a greeting over the wireless. The copy reads, that's your boy talking, your boy. Hello, Mum. Hello, Dad, he says, with all the love in the world. And the proud, cheery greeting, just for a moment, obliterates time and distance and stills troubling fear. So I think this is evidence of how, with the boys overseas, those repetitive messages, repetitive though they may have been, really worked their way into the national consciousness. Um, journalist Alan Mulgan, who was the Broadcasting Service Director of Talks during the war, he called the messages home our most personal, intimate service. So um, Natanga Sound and Vision are digitising the 1,600 surviving discs that the mobile units recorded. Many of them can be listened to already online. Uh, if you want to hear more, um, 
you can head to Natanga's website. Um, there's also my blog where I just write about aspects of this project and interesting recordings that I come across and some context around them. Um, and that pretty much wraps things up. So I'm happy to take any questions. Kia ora. Oh, kia ora, Sarah. That was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I just looking at some of the comments in the chat, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how moved they were to hear those voices from the past and just um, just what an, what an incredible project. And I think clearly the making for another talk there. So no doubt we'll be in touch again. But um, yes, yeah, so as Sarah said, now we've got time for some questions. And just looking in the Q&A at the moment, I've got one here from Troy who um, said, I'm sure you've listened to countless recordings. Is Do you have a personal favourite? that stands out from the crowd? Um, it is a tough one. I mean, I think, you know, to, just referring back to what you are saying about how poignant those recordings are, um, if anyone's in Auckland at the moment at the Navy Museum, they've got a display um, featuring the recordings that the mobile unit made in Alexandria of the New Zealand men who were serving on board a um, Royal Navy vessel the HMS Neptune, and they were recorded by the unit um, literally a month before they were hit by the hit mines and sunk and, and mm. were all killed. And those are incredibly poignant because mm. the messages are all like the ones we heard today. They're all upbeat. They're all, you know, oh, it's we're going great. We'll soon be home. And, you know, with hindsight, it's just, you know, unbearably poignant to mm. listen to those. Um, but otherwise, I really enjoy listening to... Um, the language that the men use. I mean, there's mm. so many cheerios. Cheerio is used all, all the time. It doesn't just mean goodbye. It means hello, how are you? It's it's a bit like kia ora. It's um, one of these kind of multi-purpose greetings, and I find yeah. that really interesting. That's a really interesting aspect, just the, the language change, yeah. Fantastic. And I just, when I was listening to you talk about the um, recordings with Tuai Māori Battalion, I just thought I'd quickly mention that today, um, Robert Bomb Gillies, who's the last surviving member, 97-year-old of the um, Māori Battalion, was, uh, I think, will have already have received his knighthood this morning. I know that there was a luncheon for him and there's a reception tonight. Um, and he only, uh, he was only willing to accept that um, knighthood on the basis that it was basically being awarded to the entire battalion. So quite a nice little bit of a uh, nice segue there with um, the fact that as long ago as it seems, we still have those those uh, connections with those, those moments from our past. I've got a technical question here from Emma Jean, who's asking, uh, what were they using for pop socks back then? And I must admit, I don't even know what a pop sock is. So uh, this could be a good learning experience for all of us. Um, well, in some of the photos, I'm looking at, a, at the equivalent of a pop sock right now, and it's a fascinating one. So a pop sock is usually the, the foam or the fluffy cover to stop the wind noise and try and reduce um, people's voices popping when they say you know, P's and B's can often sound a bit distorted. <sighs> It looks like a bit of hessian or sacking, and it almost looks like it's got a tag or something. It looks like a piece of paper. But, yeah, I think they used whatever. I'm sure they went off with, with, with perfectly respectable broadcasting service pop socks, but um, probably by the end of the war yeah. um, they were using whatever they could find. Got a bit of Kiwi ingenuity. Hey, I've got a question here also from um, Rosemary who's asked, who's just, you know, saying brilliant. Thank you so 
Interesting. Did other countries have a similar concept or have similar broadcasting units? Yes, that's a really interesting aspect um, that I'm, I'm really keen to explore further. So the BBC, obviously, were, were forerunners in this field, although only just. I mean, the first person to take a microphone into a conflict zone and make reports um, did so in late um, 1939, so not too far ahead of, of, the, BBC, of um, the New Zealand broadcasters. When they got to Egypt, the... Um, BBC was there already and they met up with their, uh, he was already a bit of a legend and they seemed quite starstruck. They met up with Richard Dimbleby, who was the famous BBC war correspondent. And then the Australians arrived with their unit as well and they all formed a um, an empire broadcasting coordinating committee because they felt that they could, that way they'd have a bit more clout with the military authorities when it came to getting permission to move forward with the forces or record various events. So that's something I'm really keen to explore. Mm. Fantastic. Um, so I'm just going through the Q and A. That seems to be there was there was a lot of love for the uh, for the camouflaged. I'm just trying to remember the name of the vehicle. That was quite a, quite a classic photo, and I love that idea of the kind of way in which we're sort of carting things around on the back of a truck and and all the rest of it. Um, what was the model of the car again? I'm just trying to find. It was a Ford Mercury sedan. A Ford Mercury, that's right. Which was purchased at great expense. Um, it was secondhand, and apparently cars were very difficult to to get hold of in Egypt because of the war. But they um, once they finally got permission from from Wellington to to make this purchase, they eventually got hold of it, and um, you know they thrashed it. The poor vehicle. <laughs> By the end of the war, I think in Italy it was. They've gone through five engines. But, yes, that, that camouflage in the desert, I've only just um, discovered that photograph that was um, uploaded to Online Cenotaph, which is a fantastic resource, Auckland War Memorial Museum. Give them a shout-out. Um, so there, the entry, that was the entry for one of the drivers. So the, the mobile unit was assigned army drivers, and yeah. two or three of their drivers really became members of the unit. They became incredibly useful and, and vital to them. Um, one one guy in particular seems to have almost become a radio technician and engineer. And um, one of the driver's families had uploaded that photo of him with his, his prized Mercury, Ford Mercury. Mm. Fantastic. Just a question from Roger asking, um, do the unedited recordings still exist or do we only have excerpts from the edited programs? No, no, they're, they're absolutely unedited. I mean, I've just edited them down for... For, for the presentation today. But, uh, yeah, if you go to Natanga's web catalogue, um, we've shared a link, I created a link to to what to, brought, to recordings that have online content already and, and more is being uploaded as they get digitised. Right. Um, you can listen to those. And they are, I mean, often, occasionally you will hear the, the broadcaster at the start and there's a bit of there's some recordings that are well, obviously not for on air. They're just sending messages. The broadcasters themselves have made recordings sending messages back to Wellington about, you know, technical issues they're having and did you get our telegram? We need new batteries, pop socks, whatever. There's a lot of other stuff besides what actually made the... Um, made it on air in New Zealand. Mm. Um, and Joan was just asking, were there any moving images or moving image recordings done uh, as well or just sound? There's no, uh, well, 
I won't say there's no. So far, I have not found any moving images of the mobile unit in action. So there was the the, the National Film Unit yeah. um, cinematographers were there and they made those, those great newsreels. And I have come across a newspaper article which says that Arch Curry of the mobile unit narrated one of, or put, put a soundtrack with his narration to one of the um, National Film Unit's films, which was made uh, when they first, when they came back from Crete, from the Crete campaign, because the broadcasting unit, I, I should say, didn't, were not allowed to go to Greece and Crete, which right. was a good thing because with the evacuation, they would have had to leave all their gear behind and that would have been the end of that. Um, but when when the men got back to Egypt from that campaign, um, there was some footage that um, a, a press correspondent had filmed, and apparently that was edited together with, I think it's called Return to Battle or Return to, to the Fray, something like that, and that film reel was narrated by Arch Curry. But I haven't managed to hear it yet. I'm not sure if it's been digitised. I need to get back to Archives New Zealand about that one. Okay, we're just about running out of time, but I've just got a couple here. Well, one in particular, um, just asking if maybe you could say something about the photos that you've found to kind of, I guess, back oh, up. Yeah. They were a really telling part of the presentation as well. We're so lucky to have those photos. So they are um, largely, I mean, the ones that I, I credited as being supplied by the families of broadcasters, aside from those, everything's from... Um, the Turnbull Libraries collections, and they're largely by um, the official war photographers. And I, I've discovered that, so the mobile broadcasting unit, the national film unit cinematographers, the war photographers, the press correspondents, and Peter McIntyre, the war artist, were mm. all grouped together as the public relations office. And they all, um, they tended to hang out together quite a bit. They all shared an apartment once they got to Italy in, um, in Naples. And so I think, you know, and I guess it was something a bit different, a bit interesting. It made some good content for a photograph or two. Um, and they're photographs that really tell a story. And, yeah, I'm, mm. I'm so grateful for them. Oh, they're fantastic. Listen, um, I, I was just about to sort of wrap up with a few comments, but I want to read something that is in the chat because I think it sort of sums it up beautifully. And they uh, just remember, Jean, just pointing out, how great it is having someone like you dedicated to exploring and researching these sound recordings and that, um, Sarah, you're a Tonga too. So I think most of us would agree, yeah. you know, what a great presentation. And as I said at the start, and it's reflected in the comments also, people are really captured by the just how moving it is to hear those voices and to capture that experience. So I'd just like to once again thank you for making the time to come and present um, certainly sort of challenging times of trying to put presentations like this together. So I would just like to take this opportunity to, on behalf of everyone who attended today, um, Sarah, to thank you so much for a oh, uh, wonderful you, presentation. I feel privileged. I mean, right back from 2012, when I first listened to the recordings of the Māori Battalion with Monty Suta, I was just, yeah, I was blown away. And I was like, wow, this is an amazing collection and it needs more work. It needs more research. It needs to yeah. be more widely known. And yeah. Yeah, I'm just really grateful that I'm, I'm finally getting to do that work. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand history podcast from Manatu Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand history. Mā te wā.